people these days tend to treat feeling as the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, of truth, of goodness, of of justice. And feeling is just not up to that task. Emotion is not up to that task. If you don't have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, if you don't have those fundamental civil liberties, you can't have a truth-seeking enterprise. Professor George, uh, it's a great pleasure to be talking with you. Can you, where are you calling in from right now? Well, thank you very much, uh, Ian. Uh, I'm zooming in from my home in Princeton, uh, New Jersey. I live uh, near the university where, of course, I teach and have taught now for 39 uh, years. 30, can you believe it's been that long? You've seen a lot of changes. Over I time. cannot. It seems like yesterday. It really does. What is? And you're at the, the James Madison Center, correct? The James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Uh, I founded that program 23 years ago at Princeton. It's a program of Princeton University, part of our uh, Department of Politics, what we would what we call what most places call a political science department. But the James uh, Madison program is a program devoted to the study of uh, America's founding principles, the principles of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution, and of the great streams or traditions of, of thought that uh, fed the American founding, the traditions of Athens and of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we look at um, the influence of medieval thought and Renaissance thought and uh, certainly the Enlightenment uh, on the American uh, founding. And we explore all the interesting issues that uh, have arisen historically and which, of course, continue to arise and will continue to arise when it comes to the application of our founding principles, our constitutional ideals and standards to contemporary affairs. And it seems every year it feels like that your mission is more crucial and certainly this year more than ever. I mean, I'm writing, working on an essay and my opening line is, you know, you should always save hyperbole until you really need it. But 2024 really feels like the year when when all the hyperbole might just we 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 might need it. How are you? And I guess really the question is, you know, how how are you how are you seeing this in the students like your students? Are they how, how do they feel about where the country is and what are they interested in? And, and which, you know, all that's going on in college campuses today, what are you seeing among your at, at uh, your school? For me personally, the most wonderful thing about being a professor at Princeton University is getting the opportunity to teach such wonderful students. Uh, not only are they brilliant, the admissions uh, office ensures year in and year out that uh, we're fed with a supply of absolutely brilliant young men and uh, women. But uh, by and large, there are exceptions, obviously, there are at all places, but by and large, our students are genuine truth seekers. They want to understand the way the world works. Uh, they want to understand the natural world. They want to understand the social world. Uh, they're interested in in ideas, uh, and they really do want to get at the at the truth of things. And it's just an enormous pleasure to teach uh, those sorts of students. Now, uh, students will reflect in some ways what's going on in the culture inevitably. And that's certainly, certainly true today. And um, that produces some strengths in our students, but it also um, produces some weaknesses. And those weaknesses are things that we strive to remedy, to, uh, to, to overcome. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Ian, historians are fond of breaking up the epochs into the age of this and the age of that. Uh, so they tell us with some oversimplification, but nevertheless, there's some truth in it, that the medieval period was the age of faith. And by that, they're pointing to the fact that for the great medieval uh, thinkers and for medieval people generally, the ultimate touchstone of, of truth and of goodness and of justice and of right uh, had to do with conformity to the to the ideals of Christian uh, or Jewish uh, faith. Uh, there were great Islamic thinkers as well who basically had the same uh, idea. Uh, and the same historians tell us that the Enlightenment then was the age of reason, where reason was the touchstone of goodness and truth and justice and right. Now, as I say, those are oversimplifications. Anyone who knows anything about the Middle Ages knows that they were not dark ages, uh, that uh, reason was given a very high 
place um, was highly esteemed and that great uh, intellectual work was done uh, by the medievals. And by the same token or similarly, in the Enlightenment, there were many people of faith, some of the greatest scientists, scientific figures of the Enlightenment, people like Sir Isaac Newton, uh, were also people of profound uh, faith. So we're, we're pointing at truths, but oversimplifying them a bit when we call the medieval period the age of faith and the Enlightenment the age of reason or the age of science. But to the extent that that they are telling some truth there, what is our age? If the medieval period is the age of faith and the Enlightenment is the age of reason, what age do we live in? Well, this is a weakness because I'm afraid we live in the age of feeling, where people treat not faith and not reason as the touchstone or some combination of faith and reason as the touchstone of goodness and truth and justice and virtue and right. People these days tend to treat feeling as the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, of truth, of goodness, of of justice. And feeling is just not up to that task. Emotion is not up to that task. So I consider my job, uh, and I hope my colleagues consider their jobs as educators, uh, to, to, to teach students that uh, we can't simply be pushed around or allow ourselves to be pushed around by our feelings. And that feelings are not reliable touchstones of truth or goodness or justice or right. We need to be rigorously thinking about these things. And we need to avoid falling into an ideology of feeling. And it's that ideology that produces, I think, some of the problems that um, face young people today. The temptation, for example, to fall into various forms of identitarianism, uh, seeing their identities as shaping their their worldviews, whether those identities have to do with race or or sex or sexuality or ethnicity, um, falling into silos and into ideological categories based on this concept of um, of, of identity. Uh, that's a very bad uh, mistake. So we want to open students' minds, get them get them seriously thinking, uh, make them subject any proposition. Uh, even their most cherished values uh, to the scrutiny of rigorous intellectual interrogation. And that's how we shape our students to be really determined truth seekers. Uh, and we hope in the end, courageous truth speakers and lifelong uh, learners. So those are some of the challenges that we face with students today, but they're great kids. I'm honored to be able to do it uh, here at Princeton. And in most cases, when you when you push our students, when you when you hold them to high standards, they come through. They they make it. Uh, they um, they make themselves into genuine truth seekers and truth speakers. I mean, it feels like it's a little bit of I don't know. It's a little bit of old Rousseau arguments or or sort of American throw or what? Why did why? How are we in the age of feeling? Is it is it something else? Is it is it dislocation? What is that from? Well, you're 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 right to identify that old rascal uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau <laughs> with uh, with some responsibility for the to identify him with some responsibility for the problem uh, here. That way of uh, seeing seeing the world, and of course, all worldviews are the products of various causes. There no there's no there's no single uh, single cause, uh, but. You know, some things that have contributed to it, I think, are the sexual revolution, um, uh, the rise of um, safetyism, uh, sheltering people from any kind of adversity or challenge, uh, the treating of children as if everybody's entitled to a trophy, whether you uh, win, lose, or draw. Uh, you know, they're, they're very, and there are many, and there are many, many other uh, factors in there. There's also a certain uh, loss of faith, you know, not only religious faith, uh, but trust in uh, institutions, uh, the institutions of our society. Uh, sometimes the collapse of trust in institutions, whether they're again institutions of religion, institutions of government, of the media, of the courts, even of the military. Uh, sometimes the collapse of trust in institutions has been fully earned by those institutions. It's their failures that have caused the uh, 
the collapse of trust. But I think all of those contribute uh, to the challenges that we have today uh, with our with our young people, including, I would add, the mental health challenges. Uh, in the last four or five years, we've been witnessing something I hadn't seen in my previous 34 or 35 years of uh, teaching in university at Princeton University or observing what's going on at other universities. And that is a serious increase in the number of students accessing mental health services and accessing them because they need them, not just because they are more cognizant or aware that they are there and available or that the stigma about using them has uh, has been reduced, which would itself be and is a good thing. But the need for those services, there are serious mental health problems now with a great many of our children, a great many more, great, a much higher percentage than was the case even five years ago. Um, and I su suspect that some of the factors that I just mentioned have to do with that as well. Certainly social media, devices, the yeah. lack of genuine human connection. And by the way, lest anybody be under a misapprehension here, these problems began long before COVID or well before COVID. Uh, so they can't just be attributed to COVID, although COVID didn't help and COVID policies didn't help. Professor, I want to go back. You mentioned the collapse of faith in institutions it reminded me of, I mean, you've, you've taught a lot or teach a lot about Antonio Gramsci and the long march through the institutions. I wonder if you, if you could summarize that a little bit for us. You, I know it's, I know it's rather involved, but what's the, two minutes on Gramsci and the long march of the institutions? Um, well, this is interesting. It has to do with um, developments uh, on the left side of the political uh, spectrum here in the United States and in other uh, Western nations, um, especially the more, the, the, the further left uh, side of the, the spectrum. Of course, the most important uh, figure historically uh, for the far left, was Karl Marx. And Marx, as everyone uh, knows, uh, believed that the internal contradictions of capitalism uh, would eventually uh, lead uh, to a workers' revolution. Marx saw the entirety of history as being driven by class conflict. The working class against, in the capitalist uh, period, the bourgeoisie, you know, the owning class, the uh, owners of of factories and the petite bourgeoisie, you know, the merchant class and landlords and, and so forth. So Marx thought that the internal uh, contradictions of capitalism, the, the pressures on um, capitalists for uh, profit would drive them to be more and more repressive toward workers. Workers would eventually uh, rise up uh, in a violent revolution. They would uh, overthrow government uh, they would uh, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx called it, leading eventually to the establishment of communism and the withering away of the, the state. Marx's thought was economically deterministic. Everything was driven by economic relations, the, the class conflict between the workers and the, and the owners, the proletariat, as Marx called them, and the, and the bourgeoisie. Well, that revolution that Marx thought was just on the horizon didn't come. It didn't happen. In fact, the workers seemed to buy into the capitalist uh, system and capitalism seemed to provide some benefits for, for workers. The market system elevated uh, the status of many uh, workers economically and otherwise. And so by the period leading up to and following the First World War, a kind of revisionist Marxism was proposed and came to be uh, more popular that did not see everything as driven by economic relations, as Marx thought everything was. Um, instead of economics being the driver, people like Antonio Gramsci, who was an Italian Communist Party leader, and a theoretician, a philosopher, people like Gramsci began to believe that culture, uh, more than economics, or alongside economics, uh, is a is a driver of history, and uh, that um, that we need a uh, a new kind of Marxism, one that is less 
doctrinaire about the role of economic relations and takes into account uh, developments in, in culture. Uh, Gramsci hated uh, the Catholic Church, as all Marxists, of course, must. They hate all religion. But uh, although he hated the Catholic Church, he admired the way it built cultural institutions, schools and charities and all sorts of, uh, of institutions and organized people and delivered services and met people's needs. So he wanted to rebuild Marxism or build a different form of Marxism, modeled in a way on the Catholic Church, a secular left version of uh, Catholicism. That's sometimes called cultural Marxism. I prefer the term revisionist uh, Marxism. But to accomplish that goal, Gramsci and his followers needed to and proposed that they would take over the institutions or build alternative institutions to the institutions when they couldn't uh, take them over. It was a German radical, very much in the Gramscian tradition, who coined the phrase in the 1960s, the long march uh, through the institutions. While Gramsci was operating in Germany, or shortly after that period, Gramsci, by the way, died in uh, one of Mussolini's uh, prisons uh, before the uh, Great Depression and the Second World War. Uh, while Gramsci, or shortly after Gramsci, was uh, working in Italy, a school of thought arose among German uh, thinkers, came to be known as the Frankfurt School. Many of them ended up leaving Germany, uh, fleeing Hitler and coming to the United States. And this was a similarly revisionist version of Marxism that had given up on the idea that economic class conflict is the great driver of history, and also turned to look at cultural determinants in history. And this idea has been taken up uh, these days uh, by people, many of them followers of Gramsci or the great Frankfurt School theorist Herbert uh, Marcuse, who ended up uh, teaching here in the United States and was very influential on the left. They began uh, to push the idea that uh, instead of class division being the the um, mechanism for the transformation of society, the revolutionary transformation of society, instead of class, it could be things like race or marginalization uh, that you need you need since the working class wasn't behaving itself according to Marx's, uh, ambitions and aspirations. The working class wasn't rising up uh, against the status quo and, and, and revolutionizing society. You needed to count on racial minorities or ethnic minorities or people who regarded themselves as sexual minorities, uh, people who regarded themselves or were regarded as or were marginalized or victims of oppression of one sort or another. And this pretty much gives rise to um, you know, what um, came to be known in our time as critical theory, strongly associated with the Frankfurt uh, School. It's very evident in social, so-called social justice ideology, where the world is divided up into two classes of people, uh, oppressors and oppressed. They're not the working class and the bourgeoisie, and not the proletariat and the bourgeoisie anymore, but the, the oppressed and the oppressors. And you're in one class or the other, depending on your race or sex or uh, so-called sexual orientation or some other uh, such uh, status. You're in one or the other, and you've got to be treated in a certain way, depending on whether you're in the oppressor class or the uh, the oppressed class. And of course, recently, the in, by, by recently, I mean just in the last few months, this has become a very visible uh, issue uh, for the general public and not just in academia uh, because the rise of anti-Semitism, a very public anti-Semitism, including on college campuses, of course, very visible anti-Semitism has sort of exposed the idea that many people on the left categorize Jews, although historically an oppressed group across society and over time, as oppressors, because A, most Jews, at least in the West, this isn't true in Israel, but most Jews in the West are white as far as skin color is concerned. And Jews on the whole as a group are, are 
very successful by comparison with uh, with other groups, socially and economically, and uh, and and so forth. So you get this weird anomalous situation where Jews, that historically virulently persecuted group, the victims of the greatest crime in modern history, the Holocaust, uh, are nevertheless classified somehow as oppressors rather than uh, than as oppressed. So there's a kind of a nutshell treatment um, in response to your question, Ian. Well, thank you. And part of where, you know, at the end of that may be obvious where I was going to go next is, is, of course, Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and the recent testimony where um, Liz, President McGill and President Gay were, did not condemn as, so did not, con, I can't remember the exact words, they did not explicitly condemn calling for a Holocaust of Jews as hate speech or or say it would violate their schools yeah i think i can help you here and yeah, so the th the three university presidents uh president mcgill of the university of pennsylvania president gay of harvard and president cornbluth of mit the great masters institute of technology the great scientific university uh the three of them all relatively new presidents all presidents just in the last year or two um were uh, invited or uh commanded to, to uh, appear before, I suppose they weren't under subpoena, they could have not appeared, but they certainly uh, uh, felt that they had better appear when they were invited to appear before a congressional uh, committee. They were asked by Representative uh, Stefanik from New York uh, whether chanting anti-Semitic or genocidal slogans advocating genocide of Jews is I think how at least Stefanik put it would violate the code of conduct at their universities resulting in disciplinary action against people who were calling for the murder of Jews for example and in the background to this of course are recent demonstrations in which anti-Israel or pro-Hamas uh, groups on campuses were uh, chanting slogans like from the river to the sea, suggesting that Israel and perhaps even Jewish representation uh, in what is now Israel should be eliminated, made no longer to exist so that uh, Palestine would be Arab uh, from the river, being the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, interpreted, uh, according to Representative Stefanik and many others, as a genocidal statement. Well, the university presidents gave technically the legally correct answer. It would be the legally correct answer as a matter of American constitutional law. But since they were presidents of private universities, American constitutional law was not directly relevant but also legally correct from the perspective of their own free speech codes on on campus which would not permit them or other university officials to punish a student for any abstract advocacy of any idea however vile and disgusting that idea might be as the president's pointed out again correctly they couldn't punish just any advocacy of genocide. Their free speech codes don't allow that. But they could publish, I'm sorry, punish, they, they could punish and would punish, should punish and would punish um, anything that amounted to intimidation, harassment, or incitement to imminent violence. Um, that's what President Gay and President uh, McGill, the Harvard and Penn presidents, had in mind when they responded to Elise Stefanik by saying it depends, Representative Stefanik, on the context. Now, as I've said, so far what they said was technically correct. They'd been briefed by uh, lawyers, evidently from a firm that I myself used to work for years ago, the firm of Wilmer Hale. I, that's a, a merger of two firms, and the one I worked for in Boston was called Hale and Door. But they took advice, evidently, from lawyers, and they gave the lawyerly answer, and it was the correct answer from the legal point of view. Now, here's the problem. Every single one of those presidents knew perfectly well 
in invoking free speech as a reason that they would not take disciplinary action against students who chanted anti-Semitic slogans. Every one of them knew that their universities had in recent years, not like 100 years ago, I mean like six months ago, or even currently, were violating the free speech of faculty and students on campus who deviated from woke orthodoxies, you know, social justice orthodoxies, progressive orthodoxies on issues of sexuality or transgender ideology, on issues having to do with abortion, issues having to do with um, racial preferences and hiring and, and admission. And all of those presidents knew of cases on their own campuses where people were genuinely persecuted, uh, including by administrations of the university, for their speech in violation of their university codes, but with impunity nonetheless. And everybody else knew what those presidents knew. Every single representative sitting in that committee knew what those presidents knew. And what that meant, Ian, is that those presidents came across as hypocrites. And they came across as hypocrites because I'm afraid, and I'm sorry to say this, they were being hypocritical. When they invoked free speech, in the case of anti-Semitic speech, knowing full well that their institutions had persecuted people for free speech, had not respected free speech rights, that's hypocritical. And so they came off looking very bad. And now two of those presidents are no longer in office. President McGill and President Gay, the Penn and Harvard presidents, have been forced to resign uh, from office. Now, there are complications. It's not just the testimony. Um, there were issues surrounding academic integrity that uh, certainly contributed to um, President Gay uh, being asked to, asked to resign. But had it not been for that testimony and coming across as, as hypocritical, both of those women would still be presidents of their universities. What is it fundamentally, you think, how would President Gay and President McGill represent their testimony? Because certainly they, 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 they didn't, you know, would, would believe they were doing the right thing, I imagine. But how did they get in this position? Here's what they all should have said. All three of them should have said. Members of the committee, we detest anti-Semitic speech or speech that embodies prejudice or undermines the dignity of people in all cases. Our university stands for the profound inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. And we punish and will continue to punish harassment, intimidation, or any incitement to imminent violence. Now, having said that, we cannot punish consistently with our free speech commitments, and there are good reasons for those commitments, we cannot punish the advocacy of any abstract idea. If it's not harassment or incitement or uh, 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 intimidation, um, and we can explain to you when uh, speech becomes uh, incitement or harassment or intimidation, but if it's just the advocacy of an ad abstract idea, we cannot punish that consistently with our free speech requirements. We have to tolerate even speech that we find disgusting. But having said that, members of the committee, we must admit to you that our universities have in recent years not been faithful in a consistent way to our own free speech principles. So students at our university and faculty or universities and faculty members at our universities have been persecuted for their speech. At MIT, Dorian Abbott, who had been invited, a very distinguished scientist from the University of Chicago, had been invited to give a scientific lecture, had his lecture canceled by the university itself because the university did not like views he had published on political issues, especially on DEI and on uh, racial preferences and hiring and admission that had nothing to do with the speech on science that he was about to give. That was a violation of our own free speech principles that shouldn't have happened 
not at MIT, and we will make sure it never happens again. At Harvard, we have to admit, Carol Hooven, who published a, a, a book that was critical of the idea that a biological male can actually be a female and vice versa, was hounded and not protected by our university and driven from her office. And that was a violation of her free speech rights. Tyler Vanderweel in our School of Public Health at Harvard was persecuted for his views about abortion and um, uh, same-sex marriage and sexuality. That was an embarrassment to Harvard that we allowed that to happen, that we participated in that uh, persecution of Professor Vanderweel. That will not happen again. At the University of Pennsylvania, we have an ongoing case against Professor Amy Wax in the law school for expressing her views on race and racial preferences. That shouldn't be happening. That's a violation of our free speech rules. And I represent to you, this is what President McGill should have said, that I will put a stop to this uh, prosecution, which is really a persecution of, uh, of Amy Wax immediately. That's what they should have said, Ian. They were right to say that they were going to protect free speech, even for vile and disgusting speech. But they were wrong to be hypocritical by failing to fess up to the fact that when the speech was something other than anti-Semitic speech, when the speech was speech that flew in the face of woke orthodoxies on campus, they punished the speech. Does this mark any kind of change in thinking among the administrations? Well, I, I think a lot of administrators are going to be really careful now that they don't put themselves in the position of being hypocrites or being seen to be uh, hypocrites. It would be a good thing. It would be a good outcome of this whole sad, tragic affair if the result was that universities were more protective of free speech and were more faithful to their own commitments to honor and protect free speech. The worry is that it will go in the other direction that they will actually become less tolerant and protective of free speech. They'll they'll just be careful to make sure and punish uh, anti-Semitic speech just as they punish speech that uh, um, violates other um, uh, that, that offends, I should say, that offends other campus groups. I mean, they are opposed and I'm opposed to anti-Semitic speech, but what they believe or said they believe and what I believe is that you don't answer bad speech, even immoral, even disgusting speech by shutting down the speaker or punishing the speaker. You answer it with good speech. You answer it by uh, defeating the argument, uh, showing a better way, using your own right to free speech to rebut and refute the bad ideas that are being promoted by people who are um, uh, infected with prejudice. You're involved with the University of Austin at Texas. Are uh, you yes, I'm on the advisory board. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about the school? Uh, yes, it's a new venture. It's a new initiative, an attempt to found a new university. It's not part of the University of Texas at Austin. It's a separate institution. It's a private uh, institution, privately funded institution, non-sectarian. It's not church-sponsored uh, or anything like that. Um, it's only in its early uh, stages. Uh, it hasn't graduated a class of uh, students yet. I think it actually has just admitted its first its first students. Um, it's um, being supported by people like me, uh, at universities uh, around the country. Uh, Neil Ferguson out at the Hoover Institution at Stanford is involved. And there are people, uh, Steve Pinker, uh, I believe, is still involved. He was at the beginning in any event, who's professor at uh, Harvard, very famous uh, professor at Harvard. Um, and then there are people who are not university affiliated, prominent people like Barry Weiss of the Free Press, formerly of, of the New York Times, uh, who's on the advisory uh, board of the University of Austin. The president, uh, Dr. Pano Canellis, is the former president of St. John's of Annapolis, the famous great books uh, college, which has done such a wonderful job at keeping the flame of classical education alive in our, in our country. Uh, I'm not involved on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. I'm not involved in the selection of faculty. I offer advice where I can. They have a new 
constitution uh, that uh, was principally drafted by Neil Ferguson and that I uh, helped a bit with in uh, editing and revising. So I try to be helpful uh, where I can, but I'm not involved in it on a day-to-day basis. I'm not uh, teaching there, but I do encourage it. I was trying to think of how to explain Dr. Cornell West pivoting for a second here. I mean, he's a writer. I mean, well, both of you, you're academics, public intellectuals, writers. Um, and he is also a candidate for president still, I believe. That's right. He is a candidate for president. Um, you, you, you know, rather famously, you two have had a long um, close friendship. You were recently on Firing Line where you talked through, I mean, all the words that we use, just how you have civil conversations and how you, the thing that, that struck me that you both said before is, and I think we're missing so much today, separating the politics from the person. Just because someone has a political view doesn't mean that that's, that's the whole of the person. And I, uh, I know you get asked about this a lot, but I would, you know, I'd be grateful to hear a little bit more about your work with Dr. West and, you know, what it is you agree on, how you work through disagreements and how you think that, you know, your, I, your contributions, I think, together you know, help us help serve as a model for what dialogue should look like. Well, thank you. Um, I'm speaking here for myself and for Brother Cornell. I'm sure he would want to thank you, too, for those kind words. Um, Professor West, Brother Cornell and I uh, go back uh, many years together. Uh, we were both on the faculty at Princeton in the 1990s before he uh, he uh, went off to, uh, to Harvard. Uh, then he came back to Princeton from... Um, 2005 until he left again, uh, he and I taught together. We taught uh, seminars. They were really great book seminars in which we led a group of um, Princeton students. Uh, We limited the number to 18 so that we could have a real discussion. Went through the writings of the greatest thinkers in the history of Western civilization on the most important issues, the basic questions of meaning and value, what are sometimes called the existential questions. So we would uh, work through authors like Sophocles, reading the Antigone, uh, Plato, reading works such as Gorgias or the Apology or the Euthyphro. Uh, We would um, uh, read St. Augustine, uh, working through his great book called The Confessions. Uh, We also uh, did some reading of Augustine's um, work, The City of God. And going all the way forward through uh, history, we would assign Machiavelli's The Prince. We would assign writings by great figures of the Reformation, such as Luther and Calvin and Erasmus and Thomas More, uh, figures of the Renaissance, uh, Enlightenment figures, uh, John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. (laughs) And then all the way into the 19th century, we would assign writers like John Henry Newman and, and John Stuart Mill. And into the 20th century, writers like John Dewey, C.S. Lewis, Martin Buber, uh, Leo Strauss, uh, Martin Luther King, his letter from uh, Birmingham jail. And uh, we would provide, each of us would provide our own perspectives on these writings, and we would uh, engage the students and encourage them to develop their own uh, perspectives. We discouraged any use of secondary sources because these weren't classes about these authors. So we weren't interested in disputes about interpretation or translation or anything like that. We wanted to engage the authors at the level of their ideas and thinking. We wanted this to be a conversation that Brother West and I had with our students and that our students and the two of us had with Plato and St. Augustine and Luther and Erasmus all the way up to uh, the 20th century writers. Now, Professor West and I come from different political perspectives. He's on the left. I'm on the conservative side. Uh, He is the honorary chairman of Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, I take rather a dim view of socialism (laughs) myself. Um, So we're we're in very different places uh, politically. We do have many common values. Nonetheless, we're both deep believers in inherent human dignity. We both believe in the concept of truth. Uh, We may disagree about what the truth is on this or that issue, but we do believe that we share the belief that there's a truth there to be known and that the human intellect is capable, never perfectly, never fully, never without error, never comprehensively, but nevertheless capable of knowing important truths. Uh, We're both 
Christians. He's he's a Protestant Christian, not a Catholic Christian, but we share a deep Christian faith. We believe that human beings are bearers of inherent and equal dignity because we're all made in the image and likeness of God, as we're taught in Genesis uh, chapter one in the Bible. So, you know, we have these profound political differences, but we have some pretty darn profound uh, uh, commonalities when it comes to questions of um, of basic values. And we both are ferociously committed to freedom of speech, open discourse, the kind of intellectual humility that we need and that we both try to live up to that enables us to subject our views or have our views subjected to criticism. He's open to criticism. I'm open to criticism. He works hard to avoid being a dogmatist. I work hard to avoid being a dogmatist. We both think it's possible to have convictions and act on your convictions without being an ideologue, without being a dogmatist, without making the deep and damaging error of supposing that you're infallible. We both know, we should all know, that part of the human condition is that we're fallible. And that means we can be wrong and not only about the minor, trivial, superficial things in life. We should recognize, Cornell and I try to be true to this, recognizing we could be wrong about even the most deep and important issues. We can be wrong about the values that we cherish most. And so we shouldn't, both of us believe this, we shouldn't allow our identities to be too caught up and shaped by or controlled by our current beliefs. Uh, we, if if you allow that, if you if you allow your your emotions to be wrapped so tightly around your convictions that you can't entertain the possibility that you could be wrong, well, you're not going to be a truth seeker and you're not going to be a truth teller because you're going to be too in love with your own opinions, whatever they happen to be, to actually be open to revising them if it turns out, out that there are good reasons that they should be uh, revised. So our relationship is built on that on that sharing of values and commitments, despite our very significant, obviously, uh, political differences. You yeah, certainly the very big questions, though. You are very closely aligned obviously and that does seem to be part of part of the challenge today is just the you know some of those foundational beliefs that the country used to share pretty widely are maybe less widely shared and i wonder if that's yeah part of i think i think that's right i think that's right one relevant point there ian given what you just said is this um if you know anything about Plato's uh, great dialogue called The Republic. It's in many ways a puzzling dialogue. It's the one that I find hardest of all Plato's dialogues to understand. I'm, understand. I'm quite sure I don't really understand it very well. But um, in that dialogue, we have Plato's great hero, his teacher, Socrates, arguing with a character called Thrasymachus. And Socrates is arguing for the importance of truth and therefore to the life devoted to, committed to seeking truth. And Thrasymachus is the skeptic who believes that all so-called truth is, 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 a, is, a, is, is a quest for power, is a mask for, for power, that uh, the person who has power gets to dictate what truth is. In other words, what Thrasymachus stands for is the principle of might makes right. And both Cornell and I, are strongly on Socrates' side of that debate, and we're against uh, Thrasymachus. So I guess you could say both of us see our mission as as refuting or defeating uh, Thrasymachus and the belief that there's no real truth. It's all a matter of power. Now, the problem right now is lots of people don't believe, and especially lots of young people don't believe in truth, really. Um, they believe in power. Um, and there's a quest for power so that you can get is and the payoff to that is if you got the power you get to dictate what's true and what's not true well that's a deeply corrupted deeply corrupted vision and i think we need to push back very very hard against that we need to recover the idea of truth and truth seeking we need to recover 
a commitment to the virtues that make truth-seeking possible, including the virtue of intellectual humility, recognition of one's own fallibility. And we need to recover respect for and rebuild the conditions of truth-seeking, which include very critically, very centrally, the condition of freedom. If you don't have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, if you don't have those fundamental civil liberties, you can't have a truth-seeking enterprise. Universities can't be true to their mission as truth-seeking institutions if you don't have that freedom. It's the people who think that truth isn't really what matters, that there is no truth, that what really matters is power, who are perfectly happy to destroy freedom because freedom's of no use as far as they're concerned. It's all about power. Freedom is only of use only of value is only of value if you believe there's a truth that needs to be sought and you need freedom to seek it which feels like it brings us to 2024 and the election coming up so what is your <laughs> you 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 engaged on twitter on x on this question what is what is your take on support for trump and biden and, and where we're going uh well i think it uh, will be very sad for the country i have to say now, this just reflects, of course, my own political views here, and reasonable people of goodwill disagree about politics, including what should be done in uh, 2024. But for what it's worth, since you've asked me about my personal uh, political views, I do think it would be very sad if we got a uh, replay in 2024 of the 2020 election with uh, two major candidates being uh, President Biden and President Trump. Uh, I do not think that either uh, would make a good uh, president of the United States in 2024. I didn't think either of them would be a good president in 2020 uh, or 2016, although, of course, President Biden didn't run in 2016. He stood aside and Hillary Clinton uh, ran, uh, hoping to be a kind of successor to uh, Barack Obama. My fundamental problem with both of the of those candidates and the reason I hope that neither is his uh, party's nominee, is a problem of character. I'm old-fashioned, I have to admit. For what it's worth, I'm old-fashioned. I believe character really matters in a leader. Now, nobody's perfect. I realize that. All politicians have their, their flaws. All human beings have their flaws. I certainly have mine. Um, but I think basic good character is an essential component of leadership. And I don't think either President Biden or former President Trump is a person of good character. I hate to say that. I know that sounds judgmental. It is judgmental. But we as voters have to make judgments. And among the things we should judge people on is character. In 1998, during the Clinton scandal, uh, I took the position that President Clinton had undermined his presidency by showing that he was a person of bad character. It turns out he's a person of poor character. And character really matters. And I believed it when I said it about Bill Clinton. Now, a lot of people on my side, the conservative side, and the Republican side of the debate, were perfectly happy to say it about Bill Clinton. <laughs> and I assume they meant it. I certainly meant it. But I've got to hold people who seek office on the Republican side or present themselves as the uh, champions of conservative values, I have to hold them to the same standard, don't I? So, you know, I'm going to hold Donald Trump to the same standard that I hold Bill Clinton to. And when I do that, I cannot judge Donald Trump to be a person of good character, of real integrity, of honesty. No, nor can I judge Joe Biden to be such a person. Um, my own um Reference in this election, I endorsed him before he even um, announced his candidacy as Ron DeSantis of Florida. Um, while I have uh, some disagreements with his policies down there, by and large, I agree. And I think he's done a great job as governor in enacting excellent policies and providing real leadership. Um, I also think he's got really quite remarkable political achievements uh, beyond policy. He's He's turned the you know, recently, very recently, purple state of Florida into a bright red uh, state. So he's got very important 
political and policy achievements, and he's shown genuine leadership uh, as as governor. And I think that accounts for why, uh, although he won by the slightest whisker uh, his first time seeking the governorship in Florida, he won by a huge landslide, almost 60-40, in seeking re-election. He proved his mettle. He proved his worth. So I'm a DeSantis uh, supporter. But frankly, I've been really surprised and disappointed that President that uh, Governor DeSantis's campaign has not caught fire. Um, I expected him to be in the lead by now, and he's far behind uh, Donald Trump. And uh, in the most recent polling I've seen, he's fallen even a little behind uh, Governor, former South Carolina Governor uh, Nikki Haley. So um, I've been a little disappointed in that. We'll see what happens. Maybe he can make make a comeback. But I think there are other candidates uh, who are credible uh, candidates. I think the worst outcome is the one that it looks like we're headed for, which is a choice between President Trump and uh, President uh, Biden. I think that's a very poor set of um, of options. Now, uh, there this could be an election year. There have been a few in American history in which third-party candidates are viable and make a real difference. Um, you mentioned Cornell West is is seeking the presidency. I uh, saw a recent poll, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he was running at about 5% of the vote. He, he might be able to increase that. I saw uh, a poll that showed Robert F. Kennedy getting almost 20% of the vote. That is remarkable. Um, in, in this fluid and dynamic situation, if that's true, he could actually pose a challenge in some states. It's possible that he could be the first third-party candidate in many years to actually uh, pick up electoral votes. There is talk of um, Joe Manchin, who's now leaving the United States Senate, senator from my home state of West Virginia, where I was born and brought up. Uh, there's talk of him entering on what's called the no labels uh, party um, ticket. Um, who knows, uh, with someone like Manchin, a moderate Democrat, uh, maybe he could actually catch fire, uh, with the public if the alternatives are Trump and, uh, and, and Biden. And of course, uh, in the, in the Republican primaries, although Trump is way ahead, as I said, and hope, you know, DeSantis could, uh, perhaps, uh, suddenly catch him. Uh, it's possible that Haley uh, could. I I don't think that I see a candidate other than DeSantis or Haley that could. I don't think that Ramaswamy can. I, can. I don't think that Christie can. But gosh, you know, politics is an unpredictable business. So, um, so who knows? Well, there you've got my little spiel on uh, 2024 politics. It's it's worth uh, Ian exactly what you just paid for it. <laughs> no, worth more than that. I you know I have to ask you one more. Um, and this this is maybe more opinion and a little bit out of your field, but not much, I don't think. I, what is I would I would love your view of the world from Ukraine to the Middle East on what's happening and this moment we're in. Uh, this is very difficult. Uh, foreign policy is extremely uh, difficult. Um, foreign policy mistakes are very easy to make. You can make them a million ways. Getting it right, there's only one way to get it right. Most of the time, we don't get it right. Historically, you know, presidents and, and the country don't get it right or get it exactly right. And so, you know, we've had a lot of foreign policy uh, uh, disasters. So one way or another, they've turned into disasters from Vietnam to Iraq to uh, Afghanistan, just in my own uh, lifetime, to mention some in, in my own lifetime. Uh, I would not want the burdens of the presidency uh, when it came to dealing with an issue like Ukraine. I think it's a complicated and difficult issue. Uh, I have no illusions about Vladimir Putin. I, I think that he is a danger and a bad guy. Um, I think it's a mistake to to uh, treat the Zelensky uh, administration in the Ukraine as if they are um, uh, spotless heroes. I think that's a complex uh, situation. But I do believe that Ukraine has the right to uh, defend its own territory and its own people against Russian aggression. 
what I hope can be achieved is a negotiated uh, settlement. I don't see a way forward, at least I don't see. You're a military guy, and I thank you for your service to our nation. I'm not a military guy, but from my perspective, I just don't see a way for Ukraine to prevail militarily in this war. So my hope is that we can stop the carnage, stop the bloodshed, stop the destruction with some sort of a reasonable negotiated settlement. And I hope that uh, the next president of the United States, whoever he is or she, will um, work toward trying to get uh, a settlement uh, between the Zelensky and and uh, and Putin regimes. Um, in the Middle East, gosh, we've been trying to solve the Middle East forever. The problems in the Middle East. Uh, it's a terrible, dreadful situation. At the end of the day, I see no alternative to establishing a state for Palestinians and a state for Israeli Jews a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. I hope that both states would be liberal democratic states. I would hope that both states respect minorities within their states, uh, within their borders. Um, I hope that the two states, if we could ever get to the two states, would uh, trade with each other and um, develop a self-interest and a peaceful relationship rather than, than warfare. Um, I'm under no illusions about Hamas. I'm myself an Israel supporter. I'm under no illusions about Hamas. Uh, I don't think that we can get anywhere in the direction of a two-state solution so long as Hamas or Hezbollah uh, is um, exercising great influence over the Palestinian uh, population in one way or another. So I don't see the solution that I'm hoping for anywhere on the horizon. I recognize that that reasonable people of goodwill think that there can now be no two-state solution, that things have now gotten to the point that it will be impossible for there to be a two-state solution. But if that's true, that means there will be a state of perpetual animosity and episodic or periodic warfare between Israel and whoever is speaking for the Palestinians. And that is, to me, simply an unacceptable uh, long-term uh, situation. I think American uh, leaders can um, best help the cause here of peace and justice by using influence, using economic incentives with important regimes in the region like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and so forth, to try to put, create pressures that will get us in the direction of being able to establish uh, a Palestinian state alongside a, a, a Jewish state. But there's no magic wand that can be waved, uh, not by an American president, not by anybody else to, to solve this problem. Uh, even the best of presidents is going to be limited in the influence that he or she can have. I just hope whoever is the president will use whatever influence he or she does have to the best possible effect to try to bring about what Jews and Arabs in the Middle East deserve, which is a peaceful, decent life, you know, in a, in a, in a situation where they can bring up their families without fear of bombs falling or terrorism or anything like that. I mean, the situation as things stand for both Jews and Israel and of course for Palestinians is, is horrific. Uh, Hamas, as far as I can see, cares as little for Palestinians as it does for Israeli Jews. It's, it's got a goal, which is the destruction of, Israel and the elimination of the Jewish population from that part of the world. It's got a goal and it doesn't care how many uh, Palestinian civilians and non-combatants have to die in order to achieve that goal. So I see Hamas as the fundamental obstacle to peace here. Professor George, I sure appreciate your time and your insight and 
again, from my co-founder George, who was a student of yours once. Uh, yeah. We appreciate we appreciate uh, uh, your time and all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure. Good luck on your new initiative. Thank you.